welcome to the See You in the Morning podcast. Here, Craig Price and I, Cammie Wilcox, are on a quest to interview each member of the Calvin and Margaret Price family. Let's see who we're interviewing today. Today we're interviewing Mike Castella. Mike is married to Janiel Price Castella, who is the sixth child of Calvin and Margaret Price. You grew up in Hermiston, Oregon, and what was it like growing up in Hermiston when you were a kid? Oh, life was, well, it was pretty easy. Uh, Hermiston was small. There wasn't, there was no traffic lights here. Uh, we, you could, you, you could trust your kids to be out after dark. Uh, there was never a problem with anything. We had, I think we had two policemen, <laughs> two fire you know trucks. Them person- <laughs> no, I didn't know them personally. Okay. For the most part, I was a good kid, but we <laughs> lived in, where, where we live was in the country, but now it's pretty close to, well, it's not in the middle of the city, but it's, the city goes a lot further out than where we live and houses too. So it, it was, um. Uh, it was pretty laid back. Didn't have many friends over because, you know, I you know, we were in the in the country per se. We did have to walk to school, but and it didn't. We we were not allowed to ride the bus because we lived too close. Supposedly, it was. I don't remember. It was like a mile and a quarter or a mile. I don't remember how far away it was. But it was through residential area, and anyway, if it snowed, you still had to walk. So. My so we didn't have the option of getting a ride from mom or dad so we just had to take care of it i think i think it's pretty unique to to live in the same place that you were born uh, for well remember i wasn't born in hermison oh tell us more i did i did not remember that i was born in umatilla oh Umatilla had a hospital, seven beds, seven rooms. uh, And that's where I was born, five miles away from here. What what number were you for your parents, Uncle Mike? Two. Number two. Out of how many? Three. Okay, it's a relatively small family. Yeah. I was always the middle child. (laughs) (laughs) So what did your dad do? My, my dad, excuse me, my dad always worked for Pendleton Grain Growers. Um, he actually drove, delivered uh, grain pellets for cattle feed, alfalfa pellets in a, like a 10 wheel truck, drove lots of miles, worked lots of hours. Uh, at, when when he first started, well, when he first started, he worked at a in in, uh, in town in a uh, a little feed mill there that they had in town, and where they would blend all that stuff and make uh, blended cow feed and stuff in the sack. But in in uh, I can't remember what year it was. Uh, 
early on when he was working there, they decided to build uh, a big feed mill out of town, which had it was like six or seven stories high, had elevators and grain storage. And then they had a, uh, a press that they would press these pellets in so that uh, they would. Anyway, he worked there for a while, the rest of his career. At, out of Feedville, um, driving truck. Then he got into maintenance, became a, a millwright, and wow. worked also in, in the uh, maintenance department and did a lot of things like welding and fabricating, things like that. Oh, I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, and he worked his way up. And part of the thing is, is that you know, well, I will tell you a backstory. My parents uh, lived in a time when uh, if you got married, you were done with school. So my mom was, I believe, was 16 and my dad was 17. Uh, they, they got married. And uh, so they consequently got kicked out of school. So my dad ha didn't have a high school diploma. Neither did my mom. My mom eventually went back and got a GED, but my dad had no high school diploma, which uh, worried him a lot about being able to provide. And I think he sold himself short. Had uh, and Plus, I think there was some ADHD issues there, too. But um, so he didn't have a lot of self-confidence in being able to find a different job or, and I think also it was convenient where he was to stay where he was. Yeah. I was going to say, it definitely seemed like it, the older generation, once they got a job, I mean, it was like a lifelong thing, which you don't really see that sometimes nowadays. Hey, had, go ahead. I was just going to say, usually you see a lot of, a lot of transition in, in jobs yep. and career. Yeah, I think now it's like average of six different places you work before you you retire. But yeah, uh, he retired early. Had he have stayed until he was 65, he would have worked there uh, 50 years. Cammy had made mention that you always felt like your dad really pushed going to school. And Uncle Mike, after telling that story, do you feel like that's part of that, that, that maybe you pushed your kids to go to school? Seeing your oh, well, dad maybe regret it or. And I don't know that it's, we pushed them to, we just pushed education and yeah. I don't know, you know, I'm not a proponent of everybody going to college um, yeah. because there are people that college is not meant for them. Uh, yeah. Trade school. If you have a desire, follow that desire, but you can always read, figure it out out of a book or something, just education. Yeah basic stuff is what you need yeah good students yeah <laughs> wise wise counsel so while we're talking about your dad um he was a convert to the church right he was how old were you i was six i don't remember it but i remember you know i after he was baptized uh, a year later we did go to the Idaho Falls Temple and were sealed. I do remember that vividly because um, I got sick. 
<laughs> so we went, we stayed with relatives in Idaho Falls, had a farm, had lots of corn. Uh, anyway, I ended up getting sick in the night and it was terrible. I don't know, it was just from the upset of, you know, somewhere new. And anyway, it was, I, I remember that vividly. <laughs> so. so you got sick the night before you went to the temple? Correct. Oh, that's yeah. throwing, throwing up, throwing up, you know. Yeah, throwing up sick. Was yeah. was your mom a member? My mom was was always well at, at the age of eight. Uh, my mom's uh, progenitors all came across the West. They were in, lived in Nauvoo, and so they were early pioneers. So then, growing up for you was still pretty much. It sounds like I was within in the, the church. Correct. I mean, we went to church every Sunday, but sometimes we go camping for the weekend, things like that. Uh, we never went on vacation much because both parents had to work to make ends meet. Uh, and what did your mom do? Oh, my mom did a myriad of things. She's a meat wrapper. She worked uh, Dairy Queen. She owned a dress store, uh, worked at Lamb Weston. <laughs> worked at Rexall Drug. I'll, she I'll babysat you, too, right? She babysat, yeah. Which was, when we were kids, she babysat, which was not very fun for us because <laughs> we didn't realize, you know, we, we were poor. And uh, we, had the, we had what we needed. We Our needs were met. We weren't rich and we weren't uh, living the good life. We were being able to survive. And uh, I will tell you this, I think my parents bought their, the first, the house that I grew up in was actually uh, a trade, partial trade. My parents lived in a camp trailer, which was, I think it was like 30 feet long or something with my, my brother. Uh, and they had an individual who came to work on McNary Dam and they worked on Hanford. But when all that was done, they uh, had built this house with his kids. He had boys, and they, when they weren't working at the dam, they'd come, they built this house. And they were getting ready to go back to Oklahoma or somewhere for another project. And so they were looking to trade this house for a camp trailer. So my parents worked it out to where they actually traded partially this their trailer for this house that I grew up in and I think they paid eighteen hundred dollars for it wow 19 in 1955 yeah to be so, fair <laughs> yeah. so uh yeah um uh, by it's an old house by no means is it uh no it's just an old house <laughs> is it still around yeah we my my mom we moved my mom out of it about six months ago maybe a little longer and put her in the apartment but uh, we're in the process of cleaning it out and we're going to sell the house and property wow so like even grew up like your parents were still in the house you grew quote unquote grew up in oh yeah 65 years of accumulation (laughs) so you can Depression people grew up not having a whole lot. Then uh, when we came along, they didn't have a whole lot and struggling and trying to make ends meet. So 
you know, they were scrimpers, savers, uh, make do. Tell us about your siblings. <clears throat> well, my I had an older brother named Art. Uh, I don't know that we, we didn't get along very well. Uh, a lot of fights. I usually ended up with the worst end of the deal because he was almost, well, he was a little over two years older than me. So <clears throat> he knew the ropes a little better. Uh, then I had a, had a sister that was two years younger than I am. And growing up, you know, my mom sewed also. So we had a lot of handmade clothes that we wore. Uh, we didn't, she didn't hand make our pants, thank heavens. But <laughs> we, had a lot of, we had a lot of handmade shirts um, one time. We thought the bus was going to pick us up in front of our house. That's what we were told. Well, like I said, we lived a little too close to the school, so they would not stop and pick us up. So we were standing out where they told us to, and the bus drove right by us. So we said, well, okay, they're not picking us up. We're going fishing. <laughs> where I grew up, it was like, it'd be like two city lots away was a, a drainage canal that actually came out of it couple of springs so in this canal there were bass trout actually at one time there was a also a steelhead run that came up it so we spent a lot of time over at the canal <laughs> fishing yeah well i i couldn't imagine why you wouldn't be in being boys at least that's where i'd want to hang out <laughs> yeah and, and not far not far from home there was a pond called baker's pond uh, which had some, this canal kind of fed that a little bit, but they had carp in there that were like three feet long. So we'd go and, if we wanted a real tussle, we'd go and catch one of those. It seemed like you really developed a love for the outdoors, though. I mean, even even now, I feel like you like do stuff outdoors and even maybe your career a little bit, being out and about. Uh, what instilled that from when you were younger? We Our house was not very big. Uh, it had three basic bedrooms, a kitchen, dining area, and a living room. And that was it. It was probably, I would say it was probably about uh, maybe thirteen or 1,400 square feet. Um, so inside there wasn't much to do. Outside was the adventure, digging holes. Uh, I think every summer the, the fire department made a trip to our house. Because in the back, my I grew up with uh, all the house we lived in had an acre and a quarter of area. So in the back was never, uh, it wasn't under irrigation or anything. So it was always tall, dry grass. And we'd always be out digging holes, pretending like we're camping or doing something. And we, <laughs> once again, the, the, uh, babysitting kids oh we need a fire so they would light matches and all of a sudden the, the whole field's on fire and nope castle lost place is on fire again we gotta go so here comes the fire <laughs> truck. So, th to this day there's a, a fireman that retired and he he knew us that way <laughs> I, and i'm sure it wasn't always just the babysitting kids but still it was <laughs> I don't know. anyway 
Did that yeah, did it, that get your mom's blood pressure up? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, and I think I think the stress of of always trying to provide and working trying to make ends meet, they were pretty you know, stressed out a lot. So it was dealing with problems was a lot different than it is nowadays. You know, it was corporal punishment and things like that. But so the easiest way, I guess, to correct it with the least amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, life, you know, growing up, there were times, you know, we did have grass eventually. Uh, It took time, a little piece here, a little piece there. But, uh, you know, I remember just laying out on the grass, looking up, watching the clouds go by and things like that. You know, you do as a kid. Growing up, we also had a swimming pool at the Hermiston pool, which was about eh, a mile and a half, two miles away. So we'd walk to the pool, sometimes with no shoes. In the summertime, I never wore shoes. <laughs> and in, in this area, you know, you have goat heads and stickers and sandbars. And my feet got just tough enough that it didn't matter. And the pavement pavement was hot but sometimes we'd take rhubarb leaves and walk on rhubarb leaves to the swimming pool (laughs) we we always had a list if we got our list done we could go swimming Uh, sometimes we'd ignore that and just lay around and then go swimming and then come home in the last oh hour or hour and a half until mom got home we'd uh, be a mad dash to try and get everything done that was on our list (laughs) So, you know, the the dynamics of our family, I was never close with my sister. Uh, We always felt like she got uh, treated. Well, of course, she was different, but she got treated better than we did because she was a girl. I just didn't feel real close or bonded to any, not even my parents growing up. Well, you know, and, and growing up, my, my brother got to work, got a job, got to do things and had had some had a motorcycle and well, he bought a car. Then I think he ended up buying a motorcycle, sold his car. But and so I could see the advantages of having a job and getting out and having some money. So um, we used to do some things together, although it not be necessarily good things, but uh get in trouble sometimes on the, on his motorcycle going to mutual, but not going to mutual and things like that. (laughs) Mutual was for scouts was not camping and doing things. It was stuck in a room with somebody. Uh, You know how it is. Everybody else sounds like they're having a good time. They're in, we, our, our church was, the chapel was uh, a multipurpose room, and that was it as far as we'd set up chairs. So they'd be out in the multipurpose room uh, dancing or having what we thought was a good time. They, they got food, and we got stuck in this room. So there were times when I was younger, too, that even when I was like 13, 14, you know, 14, yeah, about 12, 13 or so. I'd invite friends to come that weren't members. And then 
uh, before that, when we'd go into the other room for scouts, we'd just take the screen off the window and we'd be gone and <laughs> skip, skip out and go do other stuff. We just didn't feel like, you know, we didn't feel important because uh, nobody wanted to be with us as far as leaders. We didn't have anybody. So um, didn't want to take us camping or, or didn't couldn't because trying to live, earn a living, I don't know what it was, but we just felt like it was more fun to go and mess around town. You mean you decided to go on a mission? What drove the, what drove that for you? At that time, it wasn't really you that filled out paperwork. It was your bishop. And I knew that I needed, you know, I was re- expected to go. Everybody just expected it. Yeah. So they asked and I said, yes. And, um, uh, I was scared about it. I didn't have very good self-esteem. I didn't have very good um, self-confidence either. So, you know, I was kind of concerned about it, but I said I would go. And so uh, they filled out all the paperwork and I signed it and sent, they sent it in. And so then, then it all came and uh, I was a little late bloomer. My brother got held back. So in school, so, I, uh, I consequently, I didn't get to advance. So when I graduated, I was 19. I already had a mission call uh, when I graduated from high school. For the most part, I hadn't been anywhere in my life. Uh, two summers, I worked away uh, all summer. One when I was 14, which was pretty, uh, it was pretty traumatic for me. I'd never been away from home. Went and worked with my brother. My uncle uncle was a manager on a farm in Raft River, Idaho. Before you turn the corner to go towards Burley, in the middle of nowhere, went to church yeah. on Sundays, and that was it. We went to town once that whole summer. I lost, I lost probably 30, 40 pounds and three pant sizes and a moving sprinkler pipe. But even there, you know, my brother... Uh, We've we got to drive a tractor and a pickup for to move pipes. So I got to drive a little bit when I was fourteen, but my brother always hogged it. And every other other uh, line that you move sprinkler pipe, you should you're supposed to be able to drive the tractor up to the next one where you were. And so we just leapfrog. But he'd uh, hurry and do it, and he would just take the tractor. So I had to walk twice as far. So. <laughs> I called him on it once, and so then he went ahead and proceeded to cause a fight and punched me in the nose and made me bleed. And so I just said, well, fine. I walked up to the house, and my uncle made him move all the rest of the pipe by himself. So, but, yeah, it was. And and then once when I was 17, I worked for the same uncle over north of Rexburg, all in hay that we hand-loaded. My brother passed away when I was uh, 16, uh, tender mercy there. Uh, we had been working on the same farm. I was driving a swather and he was doing the bailing and some of the hay pickup with a, a bail wagon or an accumulator self-propelled. And uh, up two weeks before his passing, they decided they didn't need me. Maybe because I was breaking too much stuff. I don't know. Uh, I was 
pretty young and inexperienced and wasn't very fast because I was trying to do everything right. But um, so I was I was not working there. Uh, he was he was trying to adjust some things on the machine without shutting it off, and it it actually crushed him. So uh, that was one tender mercy, and the second one was that the day that that happened was mutual, and we were scheduled to go to the river and have a party, and I just the spirit said. He's not coming home. My parents just said, well, take the car and go. I said, no, he's not coming. He's not coming home. And they just wouldn't listen to me. So I, they made us go. I was at there, barely got changed into a swimsuit. And they came and told us that my brother had been killed. So we went home. So, uh, but uh, the bishop came and counselors and gave us all blessings and Unfortunately, I felt really bad for for Dave, the the farm owner, because uh, he found my brother, and the, the machine was still running. He he actually got the cutting torch and cut part of his machine apart to try and get my brother out. Uh, the whole time called the ambulance and things, but you know he yeah. he brought his, he brought his minister with him to my parents' house when. Uh, and, you know, he, he was just devastated because he was the kind of farmer that would invite the employees in to eat lunch. And the family all knew my brother, his wife. Uh, so it, my brother played with the kids. It just bothered him so bad that he ended up selling his farm and uh, went into a different profession, building houses with his brother. But So, yeah, it's... Uh, from that time on, you know, it was a little different. I didn't really, I got my own room, but I really didn't want to do it that way. Never bothered me one bit to shut the machine, any machine off before I did anything to it after that. Yeah. yeah. So a hard lesson to learn. Uh, now my sister and I have a fairly good relationship dealing with my mom, but uh, my sister is a worrier, tries to uh, solve all the problems and takes everything personal. So I, I will say it this way. There are many times when I talk her off the ledge. So, well, you know, it's you got to be the voice of reason sometimes. You know, and, and it's be, it's been a little better. You know, it's we have a common cause that's not really uh, personal, per se. So yeah. did your relationship with your parents change after your brother died? Uh, you know, my I think my dad tried to do that. Well, you know, and, and it was pretty good. My dad, before that, my dad, when he was driving, sometimes he would, he asked if we could ride with him when he was delivering stuff that came by the house. So there were times when we'd get to go with him probably three or four hours away in the truck, just going with him, being with him. So, uh Although one time I will tell you this, we were in Pendleton. Uh, he went to pick up his check at the main office and my brother, I don't remember how old we were or anything, turned the key on, you know, and all the lights had come on and everything. <laughs> and this is an old diesel truck that when, so I thought, well, okay, I did that, but I turned it too far <laughs> and it started. It was in gear. 
and it was going across the parking lot. I turned the key off, but nothing happened. Yeah, you, know, you got to pull, pull, pull the fuel kill switch. Yep, that pulled the old uh, handle there, but I didn't know that. And finally, a guy jumped on the side and pulled that and stopped us about five feet from hitting another car. We didn't get to ride with him much after that. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. After my brother passed away, we uh, dad tried to do a lot more things together. Uh, we went fishing and things like that, camping, just him and I sometimes. So, but they put in your papers for you, oh. for your mission. Where did you go? Uh, the furthest place I could go that I couldn't swim home. <laughs> <laughs> Melbourne, I went to call to the Australia South mission, which Ooh. changed before I got there became the Melbourne mission. I, today, there are two missions where I served. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was, we went to the mission home in Salt Lake City, spent five days, and then you're on your mission. So, it was pretty scary. Your parents walked in one door. Well, you walked in together, and you just kept going, and they turned left, and you were you were gone from your parents. As I got on my mission, uh, I was pretty homesick, scared. I left a girlfriend, uh, which now I realize was another tender mercy. But um, and and the whole time I was there, I was hoping she'd send me a dear John, but I wasn't uh, brave enough to just break it off while we, while I was on my mission. So she wrote me the whole time, but all the letters started being the same. Uh, as I got home, then we broke up and went our separate ways. But uh, and one, one de determining factor was before I even got home, they were planning the, the bridal, sh or, yeah, the bridal shower and all that stuff. So I, I hadn't even asked her yet. So anyway, <laughs> that was probably a determining there. factor. <laughs> Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, the first six months on my mission was pretty traumatic and uh, soul searching, uh, trying to gain a testimony if I had one to build it, read the Book of Mormon, uh, gained a testimony. I will, the first six months of my mission was probably the most successful of my whole mission. Uh we were able to have some baptisms, some miracles. Uh, I will tell you this. We had uh, an appointment with some people, went back to the appointment. It was in the evening, and uh, the husband opened the door and said, I don't know why she told, I don't know why she told you to come back and, and uh, tonight, but we're not interested. And shut the door. So... What are we going to do? I had a good, I had a good uh, first companion. He said, let's, let's have a prayer and decide what we should do. So we went behind some bushes that were there in a, a house that was uh, for sale. Nobody was home. Some big, tall arborvita bushes and had a prayer. And we both felt prompted to knock the street again. So we went to all the homes that had not been home during the day. And we went at night. The, the, like I say, the first home was uh, vacant, 
for sale. Next home we talked to in the morning. And the next home we went to, uh, we uh, they opened the door and we told them who we were. And the man said, come in. We've been waiting for you. And it was pretty awesome. They joined the church. They were they had awesome. escaped, they had escaped from Romania, uh, but they they said we've been praying to know what church to, to go to, and so uh, they had some uh, word of wisdom issues to get over, but they they did that and joined the church. My mission presidents I had two were very inspired. I think that uh, I had very few uh, areas in my mission. I had one, two, three, four, five areas in my whole mission. Uh, I spent almost a year on the island of Tasmania in two areas. I had 12 total companions. But uh, I, my first six months, I sent two missionaries home. And that was hard. <laughs> very, very trunky. Uh, had their bags packed, were not wanting to do much. But uh, anyway, it helped me to realize that I didn't want to be that way. And, yeah. you know, going on the mission is pretty scary. And I was scared to death when I went. And when it was time to go home, I was just as scared to go because <laughs> I, I liked what I was doing. I felt uh, it was just, it was the way of life, you know, and I was in the groove and. I didn't have to make any decisions. I knew what I was doing, where I was, yeah. and what I was supposed to be doing. So, yeah, when you I, went home, that's when life happens again. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. You got to make a lot of decisions. Yeah, yeah. You know, Uncle Mike, I'm really glad you brought up a lot about your mission, though, and, and saying that, like, even the dis, like, going on one, because it is hard. Like, I remember having moments of like, I ain't doing this. <laughs> like, like that's not for me and you know i think and then when you get out there it is it's definitely an adjustment but yeah it, it, it was an adjustment but it was the greatest blessing of my life yeah you know, because i i had well the first six months we had opportunity to watch people change their lives but the rest of my mission was converting me and yeah so I'm the biggest convert from the from my mission. You know, I did have some favorite people in Australia. Uh, that not only those that we were able to teach and join the church, but we had a family that the uh, the Bartley family. We worked with them for a long time. We actually went and house set for them while I went on vacation. Uh, Oh, that's but, fun. <laughs> yeah, we got, I've never heard of that. I know. Now I'm thinking maybe I should ask the missionaries if they want to stay at my house when I go well, on we asked, we asked our mission president. He approved, said we could do that. So we were renting a room, and we had to pay rent anyway. But we just went there and so that there would be people in the house while they were gone. <clears throat> but uh, they, they, I moved. Uh, we'd been teaching them probably for six months. I moved to Tasmania. Uh, eventually, they they actually joined the church, uh, but no one no one fellowshipped them. 
So they fell, they fell away. Uh, when it was probably about six or eight years ago. I don't remember. Uh, Facebook first came out. I, uh, one of my, our first sister we taught and she joined the church. She got in contact with me. She's still active. Uh, was actually, her husband was actually in the, uh, stake presidency. Um, they were temple workers in Melbourne, but, uh, so I got this idea. What, what, why don't I just try and get on Facebook Australia and find the, the Bartleys? So I did, I, uh, put in there uh, i'm looking for andrew the bartleys and i listed them all in the approximate ages uh told them i was a missionary and had met them in 1974 and uh, so anyway it was probably 10 minutes later and i get a response from andrew who actually owns a uh, tech company so he monitors all that kind of stuff he would you know and so it was pretty exciting to reconnect after 40 some years of well 45 years of not being in contact with him well uncle mike i think you inspired me to i've been thinking lately i'm like man i there's some people on my mission that i would love to reconnect with and just haven't you know just haven't pulled the trigger on it and in my head i'm thinking after you telling that i was like wow what that is cool. Like, even though it obviously wouldn't be as long for me, but there's the fact that we have the technology in the way that it is, like it's definitely doable. It's always wow. good to, to know, you know, that those that you taught and, uh, you know, and I'm not going to say converted because we don't convert anybody. It's the spirit, but spirit. We, were able yeah. to, we were able to teach and, and they made the decision to join the church. They're still active and that, that's, what's exciting. Well, in 1970, just before I left, McDonald's came out with a campaign about two all-beef patties, lettuce, sauce, pickles. Well, I can't do it slow. Two all-beef patties, <laughs> lettuce, sauce, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. <laughs> lettuce, cheese. So if you could say all that under five seconds, uh, you could get a Big Mac for free. So when, and it had been around a while here, we didn't have a McDonald's growing up. Uh, we didn't have hardly any fast food. The only fast food we had here was like Dairy Queen. And that was it. Uh, a lot of sit-down restaurants. But um, So when we got there, one of the members in one of my areas was a manager. And he told us that they were, he would always give us coupons to go get stuff. But he told us they, they were doing that campaign. So we every McDonald's we saw, that's where we ate lunch every day. <laughs> we go in and, and do the slogan you know and we get free lunch so it was incentive to practice so we we got pretty good at it <laughs> came home uh broke up with my girlfriend but before that you know i we we flew home they let us take a week to come home from australia so we spent three days in new zealand uh, during this time we hadn't been able to go to the temple because australia didn't have a temple closest temple was new zealand so we spent three days at temple view and stayed at the hostel there which you just rent a room and i don't remember how much it was but three of us stayed together and uh, went to the temple every day and spent all day in the temple we i didn't realize that there was a cafeteria in the temple so uh, we had every day we'd go and do ceilings and all kinds of stuff in the temple well 
I hadn't eaten in two days and uh, we were doing ceilings and all of a sudden the lights went out and <laughs> I, I passed out and the lady asked us, how long has it been since you've eaten? And I said, oh, a couple of days. So she took us down to the cafeteria and bought us lunch. Oh. Uh, so, and, and there was place to buy food at the uh, hostel, but by the time we get out of the temple, it was always closed. So, uh, anyway, so that was a good experience of being at the temple, being able to be at the temple for three days. Then we flew to Hawaii, uh, spent two days in Hawaii. But what do you do? We didn't go to the Polynesian Center because I didn't know about it. We just, we were in a hotel on Waikiki Beach. Can't go swimming because you're still a missionary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> so we just walked around. It was you know, it was okay, I guess. And then got on a plane and flew to LA. Uh, had, I was going to have a two hour layover in LA, two or four, I don't remember, but the stewardess said, I can get you on an early flight, earlier flight to Seattle. So I said, okay, I'll take it instead of sitting in LA. So I, I went to Seattle and got there. And so I was there waiting for a couple hours before my parents even thought I was going to be there. So they drove from here to Seattle on a Sunday to pick me up. And uh, it was funny because I was sitting on a bench, had my luggage, everything right at the front door. And they, I see them coming in uh, during this time while I was on my mission. My sister got married, had a baby. Uh, anyway, my my mom, she's in a, almost in a dead run, you know, she's, <laughs> I stand up and she walks right by me. She run, almost runs right by me, headed for down to wherever the gate's supposed to be, you know, and uh, for my flight. And finally I said, mom, and, and then she noticed who I was and stopped. But yeah, she didn't even think I didn't pay any attention that I was already there. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. That, and that was the time when uh, church was in the morning and in the evening, so sacrament meeting. So we actually had time to get home for sacrament meeting that day. So I, uh, I was. They called me to bear my testimony, and actually, your dad was there, Craig, when I got home. Your really? dad and yeah, they were in that same meeting, and uh, uh, Aunt Janelle was actually speaking in that meeting about i think about journals but uh, in sacrament meeting so i bore my testimony and sat down and glenn told janelle that oh he'll ask you out within the first week they <laughs> <laughs> had this event going on but oh they were just visiting from seaside they were visiting grandma and grandpa price so uh i uh i was pretty smitten even you know, even <laughs> though I had left a girlfriend, you know, I she was the prettiest girl I had ever seen. And uh go at Janelle. <laughs> anyway, she uh so the the next I don't remember how long oh it was it was a couple of weeks. We we left and we went to Idaho to Rexburg to my aunt's house and went to uh, up to the playhouse and did a few things over there. So I, I didn't have a job. 
And I was just kind of hanging out with my parents, trying to acclimate back to a civilian, you know, looking for my companion and feeling pretty lonely. And uh, so then I was asked to speak the following Sunday or a Sunday after that. I don't remember which one, but um, I spoke and about my mission. And it was pretty funny because I referred to my journal a lot. It was Aunt Janelle was she said she was pretty drawn to uh, me. Well, and, and in the meantime, we were head, we were going to institute and things like that and all the girls are in the back you know oh he's gonna ask me out and this and that and so janelle didn't think she had a chance and i thought janelle was way above my pay grade so but anyway anyway they uh it, it all worked out but um she asked after i spoke i was talking to the missionaries out in the foyer and she came and asked if she could read my journal and I was horrified. And uh, <laughs> so I, I took a few pages out and said, okay, go ahead. And then an elder said, I would never let a girl read my journal. So, but anyway, and then, which gave me an opportunity. They were having a, a steak, what they call the harvest ball. So it was for all adults, uh, a big to do with like a, it's like a youth dance only for adults. So I asked her to that, and uh, that's kind of how it all began. I will I will tell you that I had to ask Doug about five times how to spell her name. <laughs> I kept forgetting the name, but oh, then her dad Cal decided that I needed to come. I think he was in the elders' quorum presidency, or I don't remember if that or high priest group or something. But he thought that I needed to come and give a fireside at his at the house about my mission. So I took slides and all that stuff and went to their house. I, so once again, I got to see Janelle. As you as you know, Janelle was still just uh, 18, just graduated from high school three months before. Actually, a month before. I got home in July, so... Well, anyway. And she definitely had some married siblings before, like, you know. Yep, she was the oldest. They were all of them got married either in, well, they were all in Portland. So yeah. your dad and Glenn or uh, Arlie and Kathy and uh, Barbara. <laughs> so anyway, we started that adventure. And, uh, it was interesting. I don't remember how long it was. Uh, we, I, I did not ask her dad if I could get married. I asked Janelle first, and uh, Janelle says, "Well, I have to pray about it." And so fast and pray. I'd already done that, and uh, so that day, I, I had gotten a job working on a farm during harvest. So I went to work at like 5.30 in the morning and got off about 8 o'clock at night and went to their house in Irrigan. Uh, then I would take Janelle to work at 11, go home in time to get to bed and get out of bed to go back to work at 5 o'clock. So uh, 
Wait, what was she? What was she doing at eleven? What did she, she do for a job? She went. She worked at Oregon Potato and Boardman, working on a trim line, just trimming bad spots out of uh, potatoes. All night long. All night long. Anyway, uh, I went back that day, the next when the next day, and asked her, "Did you, did you pray?" No, I was too afraid to. <laughs> Why? Well, what if what if he says no? <laughs> anyway, uh, there was a, a little grove of trees up the street from where she lived there in Oregon on Fourth West. So we w- took a walk went into those trees and knelt down and prayed. And uh, I prayed and she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, then you, you need to pray. So she did. And she said that she got the most overwhelming, warm feeling that uh, she knew that it was okay. That was right. But she said, and many times after when we had some disagreements or, uh, serious arguments or discussions that uh, that same warm feeling would come back. Janelle says, you'll have to ask my dad if we can get married. And so I planned to do that. And they knew what was going on. And so they played me pretty bad. And (laughs) I was sweating like a terrible. And my hands were sweaty. And whenever I want to talk to them about getting married one would leave the room or you know they just played me terrible but anyway i finally ended up asking and they said yes but we got married in march march 23rd three months later they were gone they moved back to utah he'd lost his job there and so they stayed around for three months and uh so once again, well, and, and plus by that time in January, I hadn't started working for the railroad. And uh, so I was gone all week long. And her, Doug and Karen and sometimes Lynette would always go and spend time at the our house. We had a house a trailer that we had bought before we got married. Another tender mercy. Uh, and in a trailer court here in Umatilla. So they would spend time over at Janelle's, but they were in Cal and Marg were kind of, mom and dad were afraid that Janelle would go and spend more time at, in Oregon. Uh, so uh, dad had a talk with Janelle and said that I was welcome. Mike was welcome at our, but if you guys have a disagreement or a fight or anything, you're not welcome here. <laughs> it devastated Janelle. Not in the sense, not in the sense that, uh, you know, she just felt abandoned uh, in the sense of not being able to to go there. But uh, they were afraid that if I was gone, that she would just end up spending all her time there. So uh, it, it pretty well devastated her. And then finally, I think she realized what what had happened. Uh, but that had to be lonely, right? I mean, she'd never lived by herself. She'd she now had, had a roommate who was gone all week long. Yeah. So true. She had a job uh, working at for a chiropractor as a receptionist. 
how how was that going from your small family to obviously married into a very big family? <laughs> I, lo- I loved it. It was great. <clears throat> we had to wait until we could go to Utah. The first year that I worked, I didn't get a vacation. You know, the first, the second year I got a vacation, but uh, I only got one week of vacation, so I didn't know. We we usually spent vacation at mom and dad's in Utah, so and I always tried to make it so that Janelle could spend time with her family. You started at the railroad at Union Pacific as a signalman. I did well as an assistant signalman. And what does that entail? <laughs> That entails that you have, uh, ooh. <clears throat> basically you're a laborer, and then uh, each time they have their own instructional school where you go to school for two weeks at a time. They train you in, in your specific uh, area. They used to have their own classroom basically at the depot in Salt Lake City where we would go and uh, had a room set up for uh, teaching you how to read blueprints and uh, circuits and troubleshooting and all kinds of stuff and uh, relays that were governed by other relays. Anyway, they taught us all about being a signalman. But uh, every time you would go and learn, you had a test at the end. Your test determined if you had a job. And so it was, pretty, it was pretty stressful for me. If you didn't pass, you had another chance to pass it two times and you were out. So I did not test well in high school or in school. They, it just freaked me out. And I think that's why a lot of my uh, high school years were not real good as far as grades. But uh, I stressed so bad that I would every night I wouldn't even do anything with the family. I just study. And we'd always stay with with uh, mom and dad and so that Janelle would have time with uh, family and siblings. And so I would study every night. uh, And ultimately I had a, or you have four different tests uh, during the time that you're an assistant. And every time I, my average, I think was like in the nineties. So, you know, I, I probably didn't have a reason to stress, but, uh, for me, te- you say test and I freak. Yeah. So, well, well, it's mostly the livelihood of your family, right? I mean, at least, yeah. at least this is the career you're going into. So it's like I, I could see that being extremely stressful. It sounds like you didn't ever have to take a test twice, though. No, I never took two. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, and, uh, so consequently, after each one of those, then you become uh, an assistant. Uh, you go through first, second, third, and fourth, and each time you get a pay raise. So it was a step up. Then once you pass your your final uh, test, uh, you have to wait until there's an opening. They only had X amount of sigma. So, and you had different crews they had certain amount of people on that crew so if you had people that retired or moved into being a a signal maintainer which was a different area um, they had a section that they took care of 
I was on the construction side, so we would travel all around. Um, but you had to wait until there was an opening, and then you could you could take that opening, bid on it. If you were the highest bidder, then you would get it. Sometimes people would want to move from one gang to another. So you just basically took whatever was open. So that might mean that you had to move. Uh, you might be on a crew that's in Seattle or uh, wherever. So the highest bidder had the most experience. Is that time. is that how you had time? Time. Whoever had had the hired the had the oldest hiring date. Okay. So yeah, so I spent. Our, my area was uh, the Pacific Northwest. I spent two trips to California, which was kind of nice because both times I got to go see Uncle David, uh, spend time there in his home. Yeah. But, uh, uh, anyway, uh, so it entailed, I spent two years in Seattle, driving back and forth every weekend. Uh, for the majority of the time that we worked, that I worked for the railroad, I did not move until might have been eighty-seven something. But anyway, at that time, <clears throat> I'd been working away. I'd been actually, I had got bumped. They had eliminated a job somewhere, and so I got bumped. I was working in in uh, Baker City, got bumped, and so I had to go to Portland. So I uh, went to Portland and was working there. I'd worked there for two years, lived in the back of my pickup in a camper, uh, a shell, not a camper camper. Like just a, a canopy. A, a right. canopy. Yeah, just, just the cover over the bed. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, and it was the old, the old little Mazda pickup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, and, and I got sick. Uh, got pneumonia, uh, and so I moved in with uh, my mom. Had a cousin that lived there, and Ion's daughter. So uh, in Vancouver, so they actually let me come and stay with them. And then uh, during this time, they thought it was wise that I become uh, Elders Corn president. I'm home Saturday and Sunday. And I said, I don't know how I could do that. They they insisted. So finally, I just decided we're moving. Because I thought maybe I'd be able to find something back out on the east side of the state. Nothing was open. They weren't, nothing was growing. And so I just decided this is dumb. I'm tired of living in So I started looking for a house and uh, prayed about it. And <laughs> another tender mercy. <clears throat> it came, I looked in the paper and this ad just stuck out. I mean, it, it was like a neon light flashing. <laughs> so I went to this open house and I, I was so confident that I was going to get them. We were going to get the house because it had already been revealed to me. But I asked the lady if she wanted me to write a deposit check. She goes, oh, I'll, I'll look over everybody's application. And so I said, okay. So anyway, we ended up getting the house <clears throat> on 17th Street. 
and uh, lived there for about four months. And it was more than we could afford. We rented the house here in Hermiston. And uh, we were selling stuff every month to make the house payment. So uh, at the church, oh, guess what? I was there two weeks and they called me to be the elders corn president. My <laughs> <laughs> father knew what was coming down the pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that because I decided that I was the elders corn president, that's what made it so I was going to move. But so two weeks, well, it was about two or three months later, we saw an ad on the bulletin board at the church, a house for rent in a different ward. And so it was $400 a month, which was less than we were paying. So we decided we were going to move again. So we arranged all of that. We moved. <laughs> and I was called to be the elders corn president again in that <laughs> other ward. So finally, I said, okay, I get it. But anyway, uh, I wasn't there very long because uh, we met. Well, anyway, I, I was called to be the scoutmaster. And because of some things that uh, I had done in the in the other ward that we were in, I just been the wood badge and uh, showed them how to build fires with a bow drill and all kinds of stuff, fun stuff like that. And my friend Scott, who was in the he was in the stake young men's, saw me, and that's how basically how we became friends. Uh, we moved to their ward and and. Uh, he was my assistant scoutmaster and I was the scoutmaster. He was the counselor in the young men's presidency in the ward. So anyway, that started a good relationship and we're still friends today. But uh, so uh, I learned that you don't move just to get, uh, I was like Jonah. Uh, you, don't just, <laughs> you don't just move to get out of it, but it was a blessing too, the fact that it helped us find doctors for my wife when we she was diagnosed with the dermoid cyst. We uh, we bought the teepee, then we we took it to uh, Star Valley for the family reunion, but at that time Janelle was really bad with uh, things, uh, her uh, back and her legs didn't work right, and she drug her one foot. Uh, so that it even wore the top of her shoe off. Uh, so we were, vision and other <clears throat> struggles yeah. too. Yeah, and so she'd been attending a chiropractor trying to figure it out. And finally, he said, uh, "Well, I don't think you have. It's your problem with your back. I think it's. I think you have. Uh, I think you have MS, and uh, that devastated us." But uh, he said, I, I know a neurologist, a friend, that I'll call him and see if he can get you in. So mom said, yes. And she said, do it now. <laughs> she was desperate. And things were, were dire. Uh, and it was like three months before he could see her. So every day mom would pray that, uh, Janelle would pray that they'd have an opening and she could go. And it, Finally, uh, within a week, I think it was that her praying, she, they had an opening and got her in. Debbie Edwards took her, and uh, it was interesting. He, the neurologist, said, "Well, 
He listened to her talk. He'd ask her questions, time, how long it took her to answer. <clears throat> and he said, I, I don't know what you have, but I, know, I don't think it's MS. And previous to this, uh, Grandma and Grandpa had come, and Chenille asked him to give her a blessing. And I think Grandpa fasted for a couple of days and gave her a beautiful blessing. But he promised her that she would recover. And we, you know, Grandma was pretty adamant. You don't recover from MS. It was still kind of stressful, too, in the fact that... Uh, Here's my wife, who's getting worse and worse, and it got to a point where it was, well, we were starting to think about death, and uh, what about kids? I got four kids, and how am I going to raise kids and work? And uh, we, <clears throat> I had, Janelle and I both had the same dream of, uh, who I should ask to marry if she passed away was someone in the ward who was not married, a uh, single sister, uh, a little younger than us. But uh, anyway, so that worry was kind of gone and we could focus on uh, uh, getting her better. But yeah, then, then we, we went for tests one day and, <clears throat> Uh, they scheduled just a spinal tap and we went to the hospital and they were, uh, Dr. Grimm was deciding whether to, every time he went to do the spinal tap, or excuse me, he would, he canceled this CAT scan because it was so expensive. And every time he did, he just felt prompted that he shouldn't do that. So after three times, he finally went ahead and did the CAT scan and uh, saw what was going on. And uh, he was totally, uh, he was pretty upset, not upset, but he was, uh, he was shaking, physically, visibly shaking when he came in the room and uh, talked to us. And he said, come here, I want to show you something. So here's poor Janelle. She's left in the room. So he took me and showed me the CAT scan and showed how big her brain was and what was going on in her brain. Her brain was like about an inch or less around the outside of her skull cavity. And everything else was fluid. So there was this massive amount of pressure in her brain. And wow. uh, he said that there was... Uh, a dermoid cyst that he thought had ruptured and had blocked off. It creates calcium and all kinds of yuck, but had blocked off her spinal canal. So her spinal canal had no fluid in it. Had he have done the spinal tap, it probably would have killed her. Uh, so that's why he was physically shaking. <clears throat> but so he went back and discussed all the options and what's going on, what can we do? And he explained what was going on to Janelle. And finally he said, do you want the good news or the bad news? He said, well, give us the bad news. 
Oh, I think it was, give us the good news. Good news is it's fixable. And so we said, well, what's the bad news? So it's a lot of, it's surgeries. It's a lot of recovery, a lot of rehabilitation. So, but obviously it was worth it. So five surgeries later, uh, we have the Janelle we have today. <laughs> five. That's wow. I didn't know it was five. <laughs> well, well it was over the course of years, right? It wasn't just like four, boom, four boom. years. Four years. Oh. Um, but in your brain, there's ventricles, they're little cavities where there's fluid reservoirs on each side of your brain and in the back. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as she would, uh, as this uh, dermoid cyst had ruptured, it was very a very caustic uh, stuff that it had created, and it it uh, scarred the brain tissue, and it scarred the ventric or the there's canals in between the ventricles, so it equals pressure yeah. in between the left and right. Well, it had blocked those, so. Uh, they didn't realize this at the time. So they actually went to one side of her brain, shaved half her head, uh, went in and did surgery, put in a shunt, which is actually a pump that's in her, up under her hair where you can't see it. It's above her hairline. It's a little bulb thing that's under the skin. And that actually is then a tube that is fed all the way under her skin down into her stomach so uh, they uh, they did that everything was good for two or three months then all the symptoms came back so we went back in and they realized well and in the meantime they had made these uh, burr holes in her upper you know in, in the kind of in the front of her head there's no bone it's just covered with skin so they can put a needle in there and relieve pressure. So she ended up having to go to the hospital and they relieved pressure and they realized that she was going to have to have another shunt on the other side. So they scheduled that surgery uh, and did the same procedure on that side as they did on the other side. Uh, we were good for oh, a couple of years. And then it all came back. Same thing again, same symptoms. This time it was the third ventricle, which is in the back of your head, which controls non-voluntary uh, uh, stuff like your breathing, your heart rate, all of that stuff. And they were really concerned about how to do this. And uh, this time... Uh, they kind of figured they weren't real sure how to do it, but they were going to try and do what they'd done before. Uh, and the surgeon, we had an excellent surgeon. Uh, he, he had kind of figured out maybe how he could do it. Uh, anyway, the family got together and had a fast for Janelle that for her and the doctor. And, prayed that he would be able to, everything would go well, and that 
Janelle would recover. And, uh, he said, he told us that the night before Janelle's surgery, he had a dream of how to do the surgery. And it had never been done before. He, he figured out how he could take all these little stainless steel parts, they're microscopic, they're tiny, and fit them together and put them into uh, the one shunt, one side of the, I don't remember which side it goes to, but the third ventricle shunt actually goes to one of the other shunts and uses the same tubing that goes to her stomach. Because that was the most painful thing, was not the brain surgery. It was that they made incisions all the way down the front of the needle so they could feed the tube in and back out. You, having four kids at the time, providing for a family, medical bills, your wife. I mean, I think about when Ariana's sick for one day and feel like the whole family shuts down. Um, <laughs> I, I could only imagine the the stress but obviously you uh you you hung in there <laughs> well we didn't do it alone the family came together prayed had, had fasted uh, and mom uh, came cal became a bachelor for seven weeks seven weeks is a long time uh, i never knew that yeah, he, she came and stayed, and which gave gave me an opportunity to spend some time at the hospital during yep. surgeries. Uh, so, you know, and I, I know that it was hard on mom too. She wanted to go to the hospital, and I, I, I don't remember if she even got to go ever. When after Janelle's, oh, I don't know if it was which surgery it was. She actually walked out of the hospital. They. Uh, mandatory wheelchair ride but she said she got to the door and said i don't need that and walked and got in the van and uh, <laughs> we rode home but uh yeah it was i couldn't have done it without their support you're right it was a big bill uh, after after medical insurance we were left with over a hundred thousand dollars worth of medical bills Oh, and that's in the 80s still? Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. And if you know anything about doctors, they all want their money now. Hospital, whoever. So we set up a payment plan. Everybody got $10 a month. And we paid it religiously. Everybody says, well, just take bankruptcy. And I said, I'm not doing that. We, we finally got to the point where we paid off doctors and those things and the hospital was still left and my sister to her credit uh, actually had been helping us writing letters and seeing if people would take less money and uh, the hospital actually wrote off some of our bill at the end so uh, uh, after the doctors and everybody else were paid off the hospital was left and I don't remember how much was left at the hospital and they finally just wrote it off which was a pretty weightlifting experience, you know, to stress of paying other people and uh, barely getting by with what your family needs. I think it was 12 years. Does that sound right? It was Before a long you time. were done? Yeah, it was a long time. And here I thought, because, you know, we had our oldest, he had to have pretty extensive surgery when he was nine months old. And 
I just remember telling the hospitals, like, listen, I'm going to pay you because I got told the same thing, go into medical bankruptcy over it. And I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. But I told the hospital, I'm like, listen, I'll pay you what I can pay you. Just, just be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, back up, that happened after we moved back. It took a long time, but back up a little bit before that, I, I was just kind of, oh, I was tired of being gone all the time away from my family. So my friend Scott was actually a deputy assistant fire marshal for the city of Portland. And uh, he said they're going to be hiring. So he started tutoring myself and another individual. And we, he suggested that we take EMT class. So I did which was really hard because of my study skills and trying to keep things together. And uh, so every night while we'd go to class, I don't remember if it was twice a week or once a week, I think it was twice a week, uh, night class, uh, EMT training. And uh, so uh, I'd be studying away upstairs in our house that we had. And uh, it was hard. And, uh, came once again you know and all of a sudden they're saying test oh we had to anything you could fit on this card you could take to the test so i i don't remember it's like about an eight wide by about 10 long not printed anything on it just a clear card and so i got the smallest pen I, or pencil i could find and wrote everything i was having troubles with and you had to spell everything correctly, medical spelling, pneumonia, and all kinds of weird stuff. But uh, <laughs> so, so I wrote all this on the card and uh, uh, had given shots. Wasn't my favorite. Don't like to get them either. But uh, <laughs> anyway, after it was all, well, and, and I had to do ride time in the ambulance. So uh, it was an interesting experience. Uh, being able to go and help people uh, take vitals, and when they're in the in the ambulance, uh, I learned a lot. Helped me to be a little bit more uh, not so uptight about medical stuff, and I had a little confidence that I knew what was going on. And so, uh, anyway, I passed the class, got a B plus. Uh, what was interesting was that the person in the class got to do their ride time in life flight so i was man i was i was hoping and doing all my best to get that score but i didn't get it because i would have loved to have been in a helicopter life flight but anyway i didn't make it. but but this all, all helped me this all happened before Janelle surgeries which gave me some confidence and a little bit of uh, knowledge about what's going on. And I, it would have been totally stressful and devastating had I have not taken that. Uh, there was over 900 applicants for 13 jobs. Um, so I, I didn't make the cut. So anyway, but it's okay. I was happy that I had taken it. And I used it more on our family than anybody. Well, we decided that it was time to, try and come back home uh, a job opened up 
in uh, on the crew I was on when I got bumped to go to Portland. So I decided to bid on that and I got it. So there was about a month there that I had to travel from Portland to Baker City. We uh, were able to move back to our house we have here. And we had to do a lot of fixing after you rent it for five years. Yeah. And, uh, our outside was totally decimated too from horses and the fruit trees were all gone. And so we had to start over, but anyway, it was, it was okay. Then probably within the first two years on that crew, I became what's called a lead signalman. So you're actually the oldest on the crew. You're right underneath the, the foreman. So you get more money again and you get all the gravy jobs. Um, <laughs> Well, you get all the wiring jobs and you don't have to dig ditch as much and all that kind of stuff. Dig pole yeah. holes, climb. And I actually got to be the truck driver. So that made more money too. So I drove a, a 10 wheel uh, digger, what they call a digger derrick, which had a boom. It had an auger that was with it. So you could auger pole holes, set poles, had a basket on it to go 55 feet in the air. And so. Yeah, it was it was kind of fun in that respect, but uh, well, uh, sounds right just, up my alley. <laughs> well, it was it was fun. It was exciting. It was, uh, I, and I enjoyed the people that I was working with, even though uh, I didn't do what they did. Uh, yeah, uh, I spent a lot of time in my motel while they spent a lot of time in the bar wasting money. So during that time, I re I got diagnosed with diabetes, and so I had to lose. Doctor told me to lose twenty pounds. So while I was in the motel in Baker City, the Sun Ridge Inn, every night I don't remember what I ate for lunch, but every salads, but every night I would eat a foot long Subway sandwich. <laughs> And I would walk about two miles. And in the time that he told me to, I lost a little over 20 pounds. And uh, he was pretty impressed. He said, nobody does what I tell them to. But I've struggled with that my whole life. Uh, when I was in the fifth or sixth grade, I don't remember, I weighed 150 pounds, wow. which, which for, <clears throat> for me was normal you know but uh, for other i was i was always the biggest guy in the class fattest uh got ridiculed a lot i remember in the sixth grade though i was determined to climb the rope in pe and for the first time ever in my life i did that climbed it clear to the top because i was always afraid of being able to make it and not fall or so, but I made it. And then as we revert back, the, when I was 14 and went to, like I said, on my uncle's farm, when I lost all that weight, when I came back, I was in ninth grade. We lived where we lived. There was only uh, three year high school. So you're still in the junior high when you're in the ninth grade. So ninth grade sports, um, uh, I was pretty mean and lean. I went, <laughs> I, 
when wrestling season came, I was in football too, but wrestling season, uh, I went undefeated. I had set, I really hadn't set my sights on, I really wanted to do it further on in my career, but I really, signal inspector was getting ready to retire in a couple of years. So, uh, people kept asking me, are you going to bid that? And I said, Oh, I don't know. So once again, not knowing if I had confidence enough to do it. And, uh, and I finally decided that yeah, I'm going to bid the signal inspector's job. The inspector whom I took over for was patient, taught me everything I needed to know. And then I just started doing the job and we spent some time together and then he eventually retired and I took over. I had to, What did that entail, Uncle Mike? There are two-year tests. There are four-year tests. Uh, Ten-year tests. Uh, you test all the cable that's in the ground. Test it for you meg it for leakage, for shorts, for opens uh, every 10 years. Wow. So, which, so which these, are, these are what, so they know how, where a train is. And so they know when a signal needs to go down at like a crossing. It, it's everything. It's switch machines, crossing signals, wayside signals for trains. You have two-year tests, which are uh, basically traffic direction tests. So you, you make sure you don't get two trains together head on. There's a lot of responsibility and a lot of uh, there stress there, too. But the more I did it, the better I felt about it and the easier it was. Not that I took it lightly. It's just that I felt proficient in doing it. When when you took this job, was it something that was more like you were out on your own? Like, again, you weren't with a crew so much. It was just you doing your own inspections? That's correct. My boss was actually in Boise. So, and I didn't see him much. Uh, I was every day on my own. Me and the dispatcher and just doing our thing, getting time and getting on the tracks or getting time to do tests and all of that. It so was, what did you do when you were waiting for time? Slept. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. That's a hard one. Uh, sometimes there were things you could do in the, in the dog houses that to get you ready for testing. So there were times when we would go at two o'clock in the morning so we could get time to, yeah. uh, to do the test without trains, but there was a train like every seven minutes. So my territory ran from, uh, well, Biggs Junction to Echo, which is about, uh, it's almost, I'd say a hundred miles. Then from, from Echo, it went north to the Canadian border. Jeez. So <clears throat> it, it was a lot of territory. But it was fun territory. There was a lot of it was out in the middle of nowhere, so you had to high rail in and do your work. And the, I liked the 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 uh, we called it the washi because it was in Washington, but uh, to Spokane because they didn't have that many trains a day. 
So you have a lot of time to get your work done. So. And so how long did you work at Union Pacific? 38 years. The hard part for me was always being gone. You know, and I felt terrible coming home and have to reprimand because I felt like I didn't. I only got the bad times. I didn't see all the good times. So per se, there were good times also, but it uh, uh, maybe there was some of that stress uh, stress management there that wasn't so good as far as indiscipline. But I think the best is now seeing uh, our kids raising their own kids and instilling values that uh, we, we struggled or tried to instill in our kids, good values. Uh, even though, <clears throat> even with Jamie, we love him dearly. Uh, he, he has a heart that is as big. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Yeah. Um, he's a good kid. Just, uh, things that he wants to do right now are not the things that we would like him to do. And that's, that's his choice. So we, we, uh, we just let him do his thing and we love him. You know, uncle Mike, I got to tell you, I, I look at all your kids and I think, man, they are some awesome people. So I think you and aunt Janelle did amazing. <laughs> well, I, I know one thing, they all decided they didn't want to work for the railroad. How did you get into woodworking? Well, I don't know. Ninth grade, uh, I took shop and I liked it. Uh, building stuff. My grandfather was a cabinet maker by trade. Your, your dad's dad? No. Your mom's Mom, dad. Grandpa Black was actually a cabinet maker. Uh, he actually he worked for J.R. Simplot. Uh, built... Uh, all the kinds of stuff that they would need in their offices and uh, just stuff they built. I think ninth grade was when it all started. And I, I liked building stuff, but we just didn't have any tools. And uh, as I got older, it was more of necessity that I started. Actually, we, we lived in that single wide trailer and we moved it onto this property and I built the what we call the shop off the back of the trailer, which was going to be an added uh, uh, an added living space. And before we completed that, we decided just to buy a new house, a bigger house, and move it a little bit away from that. So I've always been building. Uh, Wait, so uh, the shop was one of your first projects? Yes. Wow. And that's but, the one at your house now, right? Yeah. That's correct. Then we built the, the garage slash my shop after that. Gotcha. And I don't know if I could do it again. I guess I could, but uh, it was a lot of work. But it was fun. So most of your woodworking projects at first were like necessity-based. Correct. Correct. A good excuse build. to buy more tools. Well, luckily, Aunt Janelle realizes that 
And I've told her enough times that the quality of your work depends on the quality of your tools. So she never complained about me needing something else and being able to produce something that she could use. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I will admit I've, bought some frivolous tools before <laughs> i think we all have i was gonna say haven't we all <laughs> so what was the most intricate thing you've done uncle mike i don't know if there's really i don't do anything like cammy does uh, i i'm more of a a straight line guy and okay it uh boxes uh, basically that's what everything is the box if you're a cabinet but you know maybe the chairs the rocking chair i still haven't finished uh, yeah. maybe and, that's what i remember seeing in your shop because like I, I was like i feel like there was a chair or something in it there's a rocking chair there that still clamped together and it's not quite done and i haven't glued it all up because i haven't finished putting it all together yet for the most part, it's just been uh, things that we needed or that would make our life a little easier, like the beds. I made our beds and uh, a bookcase, uh, things that we needed to house books or to sleep on. Uh, I, I struggled with a dresser, but I didn't plan it out very well. So it's it's in my garage, too, still waiting so growing up my dad and mom had a picnic table that was made out of like a sheet of plywood that oh, yeah like slid together <laughs> did that come from you the probably <laughs> i feel like that what's what my dad told me i was like because i just remember it's this it was like a little four spot picnic table but it kind of all snapped together yep yeah i i kind of uh Every year I try to build something for our family. Uh, I've made kazoos. I made uh, cutting boards. I made uh, just rocking horses. Yeah. Just some uh, road graders. Oh, yeah. So I have a question. Um, it sounded like scouting for you as a kid didn't really happen. Nope. But then you got called as the scoutmaster, and I mean, you were you were very deep into scouting. Like you got a silver beaver, and um, like you you spent a lot of time scouting. How did that happen? Well, first, when after mom and I got married, the first calling I had was a, a venturing coach which was like varsity scouting, but it wasn't. Uh, and I decided that I did not want to be the leader that I had had. And I would do whatever those boys wanted to do. And I know there were times when you guys suffered because I took a week of my vacation to go to summer camp Uh and you didn't get to go do other things. But uh, I had made a vow a long time ago that those young men would not grow up and say, we had a scoutmaster who wouldn't take us anywhere. So that's how it all became. 
Yeah, I will say there were definitely like 50 mile bike rides or 50 mile hikes or whatever that Megan and I like so desperately wanted to go on. We were a little jealous we didn't get to go. You know, and I'm not necessarily the planner of those, uh, but I supported them 100%. Uh, the boys wanted to do it, and my assistant had done it before, and so uh, he planned it all out, and I went with him. <laughs> so, I'd have to admit, there's probably some boys, though, that probably remember uh, Scoutmaster Castellaw doing this stuff with them, though. Because I remember the ones that would actually do stuff with us. Let's talk about Camp Robana. Tell us how, how big it is and what it is. It's 17 acres is all. It's uh, divided in half by a road, but there's an upper camp and a lower camp. It's close to a lake. Uh, when, I, when I was a youth, when I, oh, I'd say 17 they held girls camp there. It fell into disrepute. Actually, there's a little tidbit too. Uh, my sister was at girls camp in 1974. My girlfriend was at girls camp. My stake president was at girls camp. And I got set apart for my mission at girls camp, 1974. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it, uh, it, it held, I, I dug in a lot of black plastic pipe there when I was young. Even after uh, that, we worked there. My dad uh, spent a lot of time doing it. So, But because of my connection with my mission and uh, family camping there, I just, it holds a special spot in my heart. We used to be part of a stake called Richland Stake, which is probably about 45 miles away, which also would have included the camp. Then we became part of uh, Kennewick Stake, which is 37 miles away from us. And then we became our own stake. All of those had possession of this stake camp. None of them really wanted it because it was so far away. There was nothing there. They would have taken a lot of work to do anything so in in actuality it fell into our laps and uh, a couple of stake presidents before uh, I got involved they didn't really want to do anything they were to the point actually of still have they were paying taxes on it instead of improving and uh, getting off of that tax roll type thing and using it so I, I call him a good friend, some, someone I've, I've known since I was 15, um, President Rice, uh, invited us, our stake president at the time, he asked us to go camping. So we went to Cutsforth Park, which is about 45 miles away from here. We spent some, a week there with them and just scouted around and finally I said you want to you want to go see the the church property that we own he goes what we own property so I took him there and he he got all fired up he was excited about it uh, decided that we needed to develop it and had a burning desire to make it happen so he organized a committee 
with a committee chairman and anybody who wanted to be on it, the steering committee for the camp. So I've been on that for five years. Uh, President Rice has since been deceased, uh, died from pancreatic cancer, but uh, and it's been kind of a struggle to get the new state presidency to uh, you know, get enthused about it. But we've been moving forward. We're to a point now where we have flush toilets, we have a well, we have solar pump, we have water storage, we have campsites. The uh, outdoor toilets were there, but we now we have flush toilets. We were working on a shower house, but the young women said decided that they before they would they would really rather have a pavilion so that they could have a place when the, if they had girls camp there. So that's what we've started working on now, and, and for now we've tabled the the uh, shower house. Yeah, I have a design sitting right here on my desk that I did. But um, so we're working on a pavilion. I this winter I had a project. I built an outhouse for the upper property, and I'll probably build another one. But we put in an amphitheater, uh, did a lot of clearing, had a lot of a couple of stake projects there, and all the. Um, Timber, well, not all. A lot of it is now trimmed up about six feet off the floor of the, the, the ground, so there's no limbs that can catch on fire to get the fire into the top of the trees. But it's just we've had uh, people get together, and this is what we're going to do, so somebody's in charge. So when people do service, we're, it's, it's organized, yeah. and, it, and it's meaningful, and it produces results. Uh, we have made uh, four RV spots, so it's not just tent camping. Uh, hear that, Craig? That's for you. I know. Hey, <laughs> I, I I can at least say that I've camped in Oregon in Uncle Mike's driveway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to put your name on the list pretty quick because it's full all the time now. Really? That's awesome, though. Everybody wants the spot that I made for myself because, <laughs> because it's level. Yeah, I don't. You don't have to. You don't have to block or anything. You just back in and put your stabilizing stance down, and you're done. You're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do that? Did you grade it with the tractor? I did, and then yeah. we. Just had a big long level board with a level on it and handed and a lot of stuff. But there's, you know, we've spent, oh, I don't know if we've got a thousand hours yet, but. Yeah. So uh, I think, uh, I think maybe you've downplayed a little bit how much time you spend there and the things that you do. Like you, you own a tractor. Um, that you take up there and you've purchased attachments and things like that so that you could mulch all the trees and you can create pathways and you can level things and um, the grabber so that you could move the limbs and like burn them. And like you have, you and mom spend a lot of time up there and I love that you love it. Well, 
we're hoping someday that they might create a host position. And, you know, I don't know that I want to be a host, but I'd rather be the maintenance guy. Host position, you have to deal with people. <laughs> maintenance, maintenance guy, you just fix stuff. I guess mom could be the host and I could be the maintenance guy. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, well, I definitely but, remember the teepee growing up, though. Yeah, how did you get into uh, Native American? Through scouting. Fight. Through scouting and the OA, Order of the Arrow. Uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I also had a love for making things. I, I needed something in a motel that you could take. I tried building model, model one time. I don't remember. I think it was an airplane or something and came back and some made and dropped it on the floor and it was in pieces and I hadn't finished it. And so I just scrapped that idea, but I, I would always take uh, leather. I had some, uh, when we lived in Portland, I found a leather a tannery out in uh, Sherwood, and I went there, and the lady took a liking to me. Uh, I don't know why, but she used to give me really good deals, and then got to the point where she would give me all the scraps, but the scraps a lot of times were like two-inch squares, and can't do much with that, but... She gave me good prices on moose hide and uh, elk hide, and full uh, deer hides and all kinds of stuff. But So I would sew. Uh, well, let me back up. Before that, at work, we had a what was called safety bingo. And if you were safe and didn't have an accident, you got put in for safety bingo. Uh, and you had to have a bingo card and all the numbers uh, if you filled out all the numbers, you'd turn in your card, and then they'd have a drawing once, I don't remember if it was once a week or once a month. So one time I won that, and it was $300, which was pretty nice. And uh, in Stanfield, there used to be a guy that was had Indian stuff. He was from Arizona. I think he was an Indian agent for a while. And he leather everything excuse me he had arrowheads and everything native american and he had a full complete uh, regalia with uh, beaded uh, leggings and uh, a war shirt and a breech clout and all that so i i bought it with that money and that's how i got that but uh, through and also then at that time there were the scouts here before we ever moved built uh, flint, uh, percussion rifles from kits. Yep. So I did that and kind of did a few rendezvous with that. And then when we moved to Portland, the OA was more active than it was here. And I got involved with uh, leadership in the OA so I was actually somebody that would help do regalia, teaching them how to sew leather and all kinds of stuff like that. Not necessarily the kids, but the adults. So we'd have once a week we'd get together and I would we'd make moccasins or we'd uh, build stuff together. When we'd I'd see that there was a powwow or anything, I just wanted to go. So we would go. 
Yeah, I loved going to powwows and dancing. I loved that when like the kids danced, that the elders would hand out money. <laughs> <laughs> well, they wanted to get the, the youth to to get involved in their culture. And it didn't matter if you were Native American or not. If you were dancing, you got money. Yeah, it, I loved that, that they really didn't care. And they celebrated everybody participating. That That's is pretty cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dad, is there anything else you would like the Price family to know? Uh, just, yes, there is. I appreciate how I was welcomed into the family. I was one of them. I wasn't a, a brother-in-law. Uh, I was accepted uh, and felt loved by everybody. Probably not something that I had felt. Uh, you know, I knew my family loved me, but I, it's different. It was... Uh, not because they were supposed to, put it that way, because they wanted to, and I was worth uh, accepting and being in the family. So, and I love them all. I was going to say, just so. Appreciate you guys listening to the podcast we look forward to interviewing all of you and as grandma price would say see you in the morning